hear people look and go, hey, that is a godly man. It's just not an idea that we are anchored to. It's too eternal, perhaps, in some ways for us. I think of that great head. Some of you are old enough, perhaps, to have sung at some point in your life, The Rolling Stones. Can't get no satisfaction. But then if you actually read the lyrics, as opposed to those of us who were simply rolling along with the Rolling Stones back in the day, they are completely vacuous. They just kind of keep saying, yeah, yeah, I can't, I try, try, can't get no, can't get no, can't get no. And into that, God speaks to his people. God declares through the person of Jesus a radically different world, a radically different message. And in this little letter of 1 Timothy, Paul has been instructing the church in many ways. He's been elevating his son in the Lord, a young man named Timothy, who was a pastor who Paul raised up uh, behind him, that God used to rescue him. And into that, he lays out a contrast in this text, in those first few verses I read to you. We read about envy. We read about harmful speech. We read about suspicions and secret opinions, things that are not anchored to the hope of the living God. We read about the idea of constant friction, and the word choice there is of moths kind of gnawing on fabric, eating things silently or the way rust decays metal. This longing for satisfaction, this longing for something that we don't have together. I think of, I turn my TV on, and I watch the media and the ads, and the age in which we live, the marketing age, and every commercial asks you what? you have enough? you deserve? Always asking you to define your well-being from the outside in. And then when it doesn't work, to complain upward to God. And start, instead of starting upward with God, and moving downward to who we are, and outward into a world. The world drives us to define our identity and our value and our worth in a backward fashion in which we are never okay. And into that, Paul writes, verse 6, But godliness with contentment is very gain. That idea of godliness is a deep soul satisfaction that is anchored to an awesome appreciation, awareness of the living God. Paul wrote to a community, places that are similar to us. Roman and Greek cities were affluent. They were like Northeast Virginia Beach, except for the lack of gladiators and bread and circuses, although we followed those along fairly well. Greek temples were everywhere. You would have to pay fees and tithes in order to be taught, though. You would come to Pastor Carlos and say, I want to learn some more about Jesus. Can I pay you some money for it? And so profit was in view for religious purposes, not just not necessarily in the church, but in the culture. And into that comes Christ. And into that comes the place where we are called to a deeper life with the one by whom and for whom we are made. I, I think of the Rodriguez loss of Mark and the idea that we want comfort from God instead of realizing that in our discomfort we are called to cling to the one and only one who can bring comfort to our souls. You may know the name Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He was a Russian believer. He wrote these words while sitting in a Russian gulag. 
The meaning of earthly existence lies not as we have grown used to thinking and prospering, but in the development of the soul. Let me read that to you again. The meaning of earthly existence lies not as we have grown used to thinking and prospering, but in the development of the soul. And so when we come to this idea of godliness, what does it mean? A couple of definitions for you. Awesome respect according to God, a devoutness, a piety, or Easton's Bible Dictionary, the whole of practical piety, that means the whole of our lives, walking out with God. It supposes an idea of veneration, of affection toward Him, a dependence on Him, a submission, Lord, what you have for me is what my soul does need. Gratitude and obedience. Godliness. At least two observations, though, can be made when we see this simple verse. Godliness with contentment is great gain. First, the great gain of soul comes by the practice of godliness. And secondly, that godliness is something that by faith we can choose to grow in. It's not something that comes upon us, I don't wake up with godliness, I don't channel the spirit of Jesus somehow, and got it, I'm there. Rather, it is a painstaking walking out of the life of Christ in us and with us and through us. Let me ask you a few questions to reflect on with me as you think about this idea. What are some of the obstacles to this kind of soul satisfaction, this anchored life to Jesus, or Sultan needs him for this development of the soul? I don't know about you, you, you look a lot like me. Some of your faces aren't quite as large. Some are perhaps larger. Just <laughs> laugh. It's okay. I think of Ken's confession this morning, obstacles to godliness. I think often I start with simply bad perspective. As Ken shared, you know, my life is hard or I'm buried under my circumstances. Financial health, losses, suffering. I remember listening to a, a saint that is with the Lord now, Howard Hendricks. Some of you may know that name. He was a professor at Dallas Seminary. Had a student come into his office one day who did not look good. And they knew him as Prof. So Prof. Hendricks asked the student, what's wrong? What's going on? You look exhausted. And he and he said, I'm, well, I'm doing all right under the circumstances. You had to hear and see Howard Hendricks. He was about five foot four, and he kind of do these kinds of things behind his pulpit. And he said, I looked at my students, and I said, well, what are you doing under there? You see, he was identifying his life under the circumstances instead of the circumstances under the hand of God in his life. And made his decisions on who he was based backwards out of that. I'm not gifted enough, I'm not talented enough, I'm not smart enough, if only I could. You think of it in terms of the language of sin, obstacles to your perspective of growing in this soul satisfaction. We can think of addiction, lust, material things, the easy targets. Give me more satisfaction than God can or will, so I will trust Him in these places. 
a clinging to the temporal, to the immediate. Now let me stop with you for a moment. The fact is, there is great pain in this life, isn't there? I, I think of the losses of loved ones when my wife and I had been married about 10 years. Her younger brother died suddenly from an aneurysm. Losses of a father. My father-in-law died after a year and a half of our marriage. Brutal journey through amputations related to diabetes and other things. Some of you grew up in homes such that I grew up in where addiction was rampant and brokenness was kind of the soup of the day. And there was no escape from it. And so I don't want to read into this text if you're struggling. Here's my message this morning, men and women. Suck it up. Deny your turmoil. And somehow believe in Jesus is the escape from the turmoil. Rather, I want you to hear what Paul is saying is that life is difficult in the sight of heaven. Entering into that difficulty of life, accepting it as we walk in the hope of Jesus, brings a satisfaction of soul, but it does not eliminate the turmoil of the soul. Often I think in the evangelical world, we tend to want to live in a way that says, if I believe Jesus well enough, there will be no hurt, no loss, I'll just feel better. Instead of realizing that a perfect faith won't rescue you from turmoil. So often I go to Gethsemane in my mind, in Matthew 26, Matthew described Jesus this way, he was overwhelmed and distressed of spirit. And then he quotes Jesus describing himself, my soul is overwhelmed within me, distressed to the point of death. Now sit in that with me. This is the God man. Perfect faith, without sin, knowing what is to come. And such turmoil of soul that he sweats blood as he wrestles with his father. He owns where he is. Peter, James, and John, come be with me. Watch over me. I don't want to be alone in this place. The movement of the gospel frees us to be able to say, this is who I am and where I am. It frees me to say, I need you, friends. I need to not be alone in this place. It frees me to struggle with God and step into those places wherein He calls me, but not to rescue me this side of heaven from a deliverance, from the grief and the sorrow. And is that not the bait of the material goods of the world? If you have this, you do that, if you have enough money, you can escape sorrow and sadness, anxiety and distress. And yet Jesus isn't teaching you that. He's teaching me and you turn your heart toward me. The only one that can carry you through. Reach to your friends. Don't sit alone in your loss. You're not meant for isolation. An aide of J.D. Rockefeller was asked when he died, how much did he leave? And the answer is wonderful. Why all of it? Why all of it? These would be a man like Jim Elliott, a, a, a hero of the modern missionary age, who wrote shortly before he was killed by the Aka Indians, who he was there to reach. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep gain, but he cannot lose. You see, here's that second question. If these are the obstacles, then to what is a real soul-satisfying godliness anchored? 
Well, the character of God and the Word of God are the only anchors ultimately for us. Here, the author of Hebrews, from Hebrews 6, 16 and following, he writes, Men swear by someone greater than themselves, and their oath confirms what is said to put an end to all arguments. But because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose is very clear to the heirs of what was promised. He confirmed it with an oath. And he did this by two unchangeable things, and that it was impossible for him to lie. So that we have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us are greatly encouraged. We have this hope as a sure and certain anchor for the soul. What are those two things? who he is, and what he has spoken. The only anchors in the storm, this side of life. Well, what does that mean in the text? God is sovereign. Godliness, soul satisfaction is anchored to the one who speaks. And when he spoke, all that is came into existence. It is anchored to the one who speaks, and breath comes into our lungs. It is anchored to the one who knows the number of our days and whose ways are good and in whom alone there is hope and yet turmoil. I think of Isaiah 30, 15. It says, In repentance and rest you shall be saved, and quietness and trust is your hope. You skip down a few verses and we would read in 30:18, For the Lord longs to be gracious, Indeed, he rises on high to have compassion on you. He is a father to his children. So, men and women, I want you to sit with me for a moment and ask, what are those things you find yourself anchored to? Where, where we might ask, does your unrest live today? Where is that agony of soul? What does it cry out for that you really need? I'm no different than you. I'm quick to say, if only I could. If only I had a, if only, wanting an escape from the now, as I long for heaven. Amen there? Amen. Well, how do I grow? Well, I anchor to him. I anchor to his word. How can you and I grow in this soul-satisfying godliness? I would ask you or encourage you to model Jesus for a minute. Right? That's a safe answer when we sit in church. Model Jesus. What do I mean by that? Where are you now? Let's go back to Gethsemane for a moment. Jesus says, this is where I really am. The gospel, a sinless life, propels a raw place of an honesty this side of heaven. If the Savior with perfect faith can say, I'm overwhelmed, I am distressed, you and I and the hope that is in Him alone are free to say the same things and not deny it, not hide from it. Maybe you need to stop and look at your calendar. My wife is always poking me, and appropriately so, to say, Cron, look at your calendar. Would you take any time for you to breathe? And the answer is often not. Why? I have two kids starting college. I feel financial pressure, and so I live the life of the orphan. I have to manage and get it all done. And so I live from the pressure outside in instead of from the promise above down. 
Maybe you need to evaluate where you are in a relationship, morally. The attitude of your heart, I don't know. Perhaps you need to think of work. Do you honor your employers? The text talks about places that indicate your need to turn that heart back to Him, repentance, and say, Lord Jesus, You and You alone give life, and You and You alone do I find satisfaction. What do You have for me here now? And walking that out. I think perhaps the most difficult idea embedded in this text for Americans is the idea of submission to authority. I know God is the King. I know Jesus is before all things, and in Him are all things held together. But underneath that, I want life to work the way I want life to work. I don't want to say, I have to bend my knee and say, you, Lord. I don't want to say to the man or the woman that I work for, to whom I report, I trust God to work through you, and with humility I submit. I don't want to look at the challenges of life and say it is okay and it is well with my soul here. Lord, I yield as you call me to walk into these things. Now, as I say that, I'm not arguing for an Islamic or a Buddhist fatalism. I'm, I'm arguing for a free honesty wherein we can begin to make faithful choices in the present out of the hope of Him who calls. Because godliness and contentment is soul satisfaction. You and I brought nothing into the world. And with J.D. Rockefeller, we will leave all of us in this world on the day the Lord takes his time. Second thought from this text in particular is this. If you look down at 9 and 10 of chapter 6, Paul writes these words. People who want to get rich fall into a temptation and a trap into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eagle, eager for money have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many wounds. A few thoughts. Please don't hear me say wealth is wrong. I'm not saying wealth is wrong. I don't believe the scriptures teach wealth is wrong. If you don't know it, if you live somewhere around here, you're in the top one, one and a half percent of income streams in the world today. We are wealthy. You and I are wealthy people. Now you might think, no, 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 Bill Gates is wealthy. Okay, so Bill Gates is in the top, you know, one one hundredth of one whatever. But that's not our reference. You and I are wealthy and there is nothing wrong with wealth. Being paid wrong isn't wrong. That's not what Paul is saying as he speaks of Living in suburban America isn't wrong. Wealth and money is not the root of all kinds of evil. It's faith in wealth and money that is the root of all kinds of evil. I miss that sound. <laughs> Desiring wealth is not necessarily wrong. You might have to get to give it. It is when you and I covet something in place of him that we pierce ourselves with many griefs. Tim Keller rightly wrote, when we take a temporal or a valuable thing and we make it into an ultimate thing, we have made an idol and our lives will be undone because it cannot give us the life 
answers you shall not covet and runs a list. It's not an exhaustive list, so if I covet uh, my friend's Porsche, I don't have a friend with a Porsche, but if I did, and I did, it's not listed here, therefore Porsche coveting is okay. That's not the point. When you covet, you are saying, God, what you have provided for me is insufficient, and then your life turns upside down. As you seek a temporal thing that has no ultimate hope, giving the satisfaction that your soul craves. In an interview with Brad Pitt in Rolling Stone magazine, shortly after a movie that came out in the 90s called Fight Club, there's an interesting dialogue. Pitt says, man, I know all these things are supposed to seem important to us, the car, the condo, our version of success, but if that's the case, why is the general feeling out there reflecting more impotence and isolation and desperation and loneliness? If you ask me, I say, toss all this. We've got to find something else because all I know is that at this point in time, we're heading for a dead end, a numbing of the soul, a complete atrophy of the spiritual being. And I don't want it. You'd almost think he was reading the Puritans. Almost. Rolling Stone asked, so if we were heading toward this kind of existential dead end in society, what do you think should happen? Now listen to theologian Pitt. <laughs> hey man, I don't have those answers yet. The emphasis now is on success and personal gain, and he smiles. And I'm sitting in it. I'm telling you, that's not it. I'm the guy who's got everything, I know, but I'm telling you, once you got everything, you're just left with yourself. I've said it before and I'll say it again. It doesn't help you sleep any better and you don't wake up any better because of it. A powerful mirror from a contemporary voice of the ageless and timeless truth that godliness with contentment is the only thing that brings soul satisfaction. You see, God is not directing us toward this fatalism again. <coughs> Life is empty and vain, and whatever God draws on me is fine, and I don't get to make choices. That's not what he's saying. Nor are we being directed to some spiritualized form of self-sufficiency. Rather, the secret of godly soul satisfaction, of true contentment, is knowing and practicing Christ's sufficiency and Christ's dependency. We could describe it as an act of faith, an act of obedience. Not simply, oh God, be good to me while I manage my own way. The heart of that idea is the idea of repentance. And what is that? Repentance is really not stop doing this and start doing that. Repentance is aimed at, I make choices that are right or wrong out of that which my heart worships. And repentance then is the movement of my heart and my mind into that dependence and worship and clinging by faith alone at times to the trust in the one who declares he is good. It's not stop and start it. It's don't worship things that will pierce you with many griefs. Holy Spirit, enable me to turn my heart to the King in whom hope is found. When my wife and I were in college, we were very involved with the ministry of Campus Crusade for Christ, and our favorite campus director ever, Andy Roger Hersey, would forever be talking about a simple word picture that I'll leave you with 
dot and the line. If you think of the time in creation as, as essentially an eternal line, wherever God began it in the past and eternity into the future, our lives are simply a dot on a dot on the line. And Roger would ask all the time of students, are you going to live for the dot or the line? Here in the text, Paul speaks to you and me, to an affluent culture, to a people who struggle with many of the same things that you and I struggle with, with sorrow, loss, and provision, employer relationships, you name it. And into that place, he asks that same question of me, you, of us. Will you live for the line that will take you to the foot of the cross? live in the hope of the one who flung his arms out wide and said, for you, I give myself. Will you turn from those things to which you want? For they cannot give you that for which you want. We pray. Father, this morning, I thank you for your word because it is yours. We thank you together that you are rescuing us we thank you together that you know us. We thank you together that in Christ there is sufficiency in our loss. That in what you direct.